0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at com. Today, Nate welcomes Barry Mazor to discuss his book, Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Barry Mazur, author of Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. Barry, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: And Ralph Peer is a big, big deal. I mean, I knew, and we've talked about on the show, his role in the career of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, but there's a whole lot more to Ralph Peer's career than just the big bang in Bristol, as they say.
2: Yeah, that's that's the... that, that's the two weeks in a 50-year career that people have heard of most. But what it comes down to is uh, he did more to popularize forms of American roots music and bring them out to the, the general population from the region they came from and eventually to the world than any, uh, any one other individual you could name. So there's a whole lot more to that story than uh, Two Weeks of Bristol.
1: Yeah, it's it's an amazing career, and you document it really well in the book. I we're Not going to be able to cover the whole book, obviously, but want to cover the general sweep of his career, which goes from the late 1910s to the late 1950s, everything from the first blues record recorded by an African-American artist to publishing Buddy Holly, introducing Latin American music to the world, uh, country music, obviously, uh, jazz, Hokum, the first or the second Cajun recording, uh, some of the early gospel recordings—just an amazing sweep. But Ralph Peer isn't like the Lomaxes say. He wasn't a scholar or an archivist. He was a businessman, and I think that's kind of led to some sort, some misunderstandings or harsh judgments of Peer that maybe aren't fair. Is that something you agree with?
2: Uh, that was uh, that was something. There were reasons that happened, but you can start with that comparison. There's really not much reason for that comparison. I mean, he was a he was a head of professional recording production, which yes, he fostered going out into different locations to set up studios to do professional sessions, and it was in roots music. But that had very little to do, although they were cross paths, very little to do with the kind of thing folklorists like the Lomaxes did, would set up a recorder in the, in, in, the, in the trunk of their car trying to document what was out there among non-professionals. So uh, that comparison gets made a lot because academics, you know, people who teach this kind of stuff, are way more into folklorists than they are into businessmen. <laughs> so uh, the comparison is, 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 is false in many ways, but it keeps getting made. Um, that popular music depends on business is a, you know, a basic fact of life, (laughs) as you know, or nobody would have heard it. So yeah, that's who he was and that's how he worked.
1: And since he was following basically the dictates of the market as he perceived him rather than any of his personal tastes, some of his comments about the music he recorded weren't necessarily complimentary or flattering. And some of the statements he made about some of the artists he, he recorded, um, have been condemned as pretty racist statements and some of them were, but that's not really a fair reflection. It's not really fair to say that he hated this music or that he was, you know, he's not like a Tom Parker figure that was, that was 10 eared and tone deaf and only cared about a dollar. He seemed to have had a real sense for what worked and an ability to get the best out of his artists and to combine them with backing musicians in interesting ways that he's not really a Philistine. He's, Somewhere in the middle between a total businessman and and somebody- not at
2: all, yeah, not at all, not at all. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't any of those things.
1: And 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 you know, those perceptions were built
2: up by it's. It's almost the the point of the biography of, of, of my spending that time on him, because the perceptions of him were surface deep, uh, often often written down by people who came in with that hostility for the for the general situation he was from, and didn't check it out. I mean. People were writing books about this music in the 50s and 60s, which, and even into the 70s. It was a new time to do that at all. There hadn't been much writing about any of this. And uh, they would be thrilled to be well, aging musicians of that era from the 20s and 30s. And they'd ask them a question, not always the right one. But they'd ask him a question, they'd get an answer, they'd write that down and they didn't look into it. They didn't check it out. If somebody said, oh, he did X, he just dropped it in and said, well, did that happen? Did you look for the documentation? Did you, look, did you look for their contract? Did you see what they were paid? Did you see how often and how it turned? Do you have, do you have do, um, documentation from other people in the room of how they spoke to each other? So a lot of that coverage wasn't very deep or very serious. And when you get into it, a different picture emerges of a guy who was deeply involved with the music. Yes, he wasn't a musician. Yes, he didn't grow up on that. Um, he often said to be successful in the music business, it was almost important not to know too much about the music because you could get caught up in that. And he was looking for change. He wasn't looking for a very deep repetition of the same stuff. He was in the pop. Pop music is about novelty. Now, if you're going to do pop music and marry it to roots music, which is music, which has a home and a place and some depth in history, there's a tension there right away, which is like, how do you marry those two? How far do you take it? This is what we live with till this very day in those fields. But, uh, that's what he was looking for is how can we extend this music for more people to be responsive to it? And, uh, you know, a back if he'd been if, if he'd been he wasn't who they thought because they thought he was a New York you know college slicker wasn't his background at all. But uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't actually dismissive of the music. If anything, some of those quotes he, that that people attributed to him about the musicians or even the music were either inaccurate or when they were accurate. There were times when he was deliberately giving the impression that he was like above it and he wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I want to get into his background a little bit, but first, let's hear our first song snippet. And this is sure. um, by Sarah Martin, backed by the great Fat Swaller on piano. This is Taint Nobody's Business If I Do from 1922.
3: nobody's business if I do, my lover and leave him for another, if I do,
1: do, love, do, And that was Sarah Martin, backed by Foutswaller Waller on piano, doing Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, a song that became a standard covered by Billie Holiday and many others down the road. Um, and that was something he recorded for OK Records. And obviously, the big record that they recorded in this period was Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, which was the first time that an African-American artist had been paired with not technically a blues song, but something from the blues vernacular called a blues that was an enormous success and sort of epitomized the hit em where they aint strategy that OK Records and Ralph Peer would build big careers on. But before we get to any of that and before we get to his background... I have one big question, and this is something you addressed in the book. It's it's interesting to me that commercial recording really takes off in the 1890s, and yet this great body of American vernacular music doesn't really start getting recorded until the 1920s. What right. was it about the music business that biased it against folk artists or race artists, as they were called at the time, or country artists, as we call them now?
2: Yeah, it, it was the very structure of that business and, and who was in it. Um, by the structure, I mean what they thought they were after. First of all, um, as the recording industry began in the 1890s, the centerpiece of the music business, the Tim Panelli days, was sheet music publishing. And that was where the big money was. You did it to get sheet music out. Now, now People could play it in the parlor on their piano. They could play it at... Lo- Professionals might play it at a local restaurant. The more, the more people you could get into, a, into the sheet music of a song, the better that was the business. And the recording industry and the publishing industry were pretty separated and sometimes at loggerheads at first because uh, in, in some ways the old line publishers saw recording as getting in their way, believe it or not. But if, you, if your idea was to sell sheet music to musically literate people who would play it, then the entire area of down-home roots music of any flavor from any population, you kind of just ruled out and overlooked because the people didn't read music. In many cases, they couldn't read. It was a by a, a ear place. Also, the biggest labels went just to, you know, two that Pierre would work for, which is the early Columbia Records, at, which was number two, and Victor recording, eventually RCA Victor, that he would work for, too. Um, they, You can't think of about the way that people saw the Encyclopedia Britannica. It was an uplifting sort of encyclopedia town. You were going to raise the sophistication level of your own. So, you know, you could get a Red Seal Caruso record and you were, you know, you bought that. You were now cultured. That's what we, that's, that was a big part of their central sales pitch. So country music, blues music, all the related all the related down home fields, just to do it broadly, um, were considered marginal, uh, lacking in prestige and unlikely to make any money. That's what they
1: thought. And Ralph Peer proved him wrong. But let's get back to his background. Like you said, Uh he was not a college educated city slicker from the East Coast. He's actually from Independence, Missouri. Raised in Kansas City, tell us a little bit about his background and his beginnings in the record industry.
2: I pointed out, and it often shocks people, but basically, he was the son of a displaced farmer and a coal miner's daughter. Uh, that was literally the that was literally the case. Was, who his parents were? They, uh, his father was the second of two sons who did who didn't get to run the family farm, so. You know what you did in those, in those years in 1890? He was very likely to become a traveling salesman, which he did. His parents met. They settled there. Now, the key thing was his dad wound up, <laughs> this will not sound key, to the history of music and for selling sewing machines at a store in Independence. Um, I've, been, I've been right there uh, at, the place, at the site where that is. The building's still there, though it's aligned a little different. It's right up the street where, where Harry Truman worked in a drugstore um a couple blocks away but that that store was selling sewing machines at a certain point he started his dad abp abraham started to started to sell another another kind of mechanical device that had replaceable needles and gears and wheels that spun and all this like something it was called the talking machine he was selling columbia records graphophones and his kid ralph by the age of 10, we get on this fangled trolley line out front, which went down into the, the, the Columbia's warehouse in Kansas City, and he would pick up or records or stuff for the store. He started to meet people who worked at that record company. They gave him a summer job. They gave him a clerk job. So basically, little Ralph Peer had entered the record business, the, the music business by the age of 10, and he stayed there essentially for the rest of his life.
1: <laughs> Quite a commitment. And he ends up marrying in Kansas City, but getting transferred to Chicago. And then World War One happens. He uh, is gets a naval position. He's in England. He manages to double dip where he's in the, the naval – he's a commissioned yeah. officer, I believe, in the Navy, but does a tenure as a merchant marine as well. When he comes back to the States, he returns to Chicago, not Kansas City, essentially writing off his first wife. They end up getting divorced in 1921. But then his boss um, jumps to OK Records from Columbia, and uh, Pierre follows him. Tell us a little bit about Otto Heinemann and OK Records and where they were in the record business at the beginning of the 1920s when yeah, Pierre came yeah. on board.
2: Well, to A lot of people, even in the record business, it might have seemed like okay came from nowhere.
1: Heinemann had
2: been working for German record companies. He was a german jew he 'd been working for company before World War one and he was, he, was, he was involved also in equ- equipment was more like you know supplying tone arms or needles to to uh, record player manufacturers kind of thing. but he got stuck in the u.s when world war one broke out apparently quite well financed he even tried to buy the fledgling columbia or or victor record companies so he couldn't do that but uh he moved he decided to try to make the move from general phonograph his company was called that did all those parts but maybe we'll maybe we'll try getting into the record business too and they had some european records They 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 brought over classical mostly foreign language records and uh, he put together a team to run okay records which is what the label was called it's a combination of his initials and uh okay you know um but uh, he put together a record team with really top engineers of the time for recording uh, knowledgeable marketable people marketing people including piers Barth fury who came and, and, brought, and brought Pierre there with him. And Pierre, you know, like a lot of startup companies to this day, people are going to wear a lot of hats if you work for a company like that. So at first, he was again, you know, tending to the sales side. You would go visit the record stores, the distributors, or they, or they move into records like we want. And, but they gave him a shot at being involved with uh, the development of, of, of artists. So at first, it was like right from New York City where they, where, where they wound up uh, based, so there were people like the Vincent Lopez uh, Hot Dance Orchestra. And uh, the first of those blues artists they found were also right from the city. Um, they were not competitive. They were a small company by comparison with the big ones. And that was the other thing I think I need to point out is that by 1920 the period we're talking about right after World War I was the height of the record business till after World War II. They were selling tens of millions of records. They were wildly popular. And you know, that wouldn't last for that wouldn't last too many more years. But right at that time, they were looking for all kinds of new things. And that's the environment the pure started working for okay in.
1: And let's hear our second song. This is uh, from a little later in our history. And we'll get to it. This is um from the Carter family's second sessions, the second day in Bristol. This is Sarah Carter singing lead on single Girl Married Girl. That was the great Sarah Carter singing Single Girl, Married Girl. And we'll come back to OK and get into the chronology. But before we leave this song, I want to. This is a song that to me illustrates Ralph Pierce's role from a very early point. This is a song that yeah. Sarah Carter did not want to sing. And yet Ralph Peer, it was on their list of Car- the, in the Carter family repertoire. And Peer picked it on a day when A.P. Carter had wandered away. And right. it's just a brilliant performance, brilliant song. And to me, it speaks of him pretty well as a record producer. Yeah, I mean, that was he was one of the people who
2: defined what is so-called A&R, artist and Repertoire Man. This was the centerpiece of what he did for a living, even as he moved on from not producing records and only publishing. But it was always the same central thing, which is that he discovered it was ultimately what Bristol was really about, founding country music. But he was doing that before, as he was recording country music before Bristol also, as you know. But the but the but the, the fundamental idea was that if you married the right song with a personality which showed through in the singing and they came together that would be a powerful thing this could move roots music out of like the neighborhood it came from to a wider audience eventually to a global one but they had a they had a fit so pairing those things just right was important a lot of times that meant he really promulgated singer-songwriters but not everybody was that And sometimes the right song with the right person. He knew that kind of song. He'd recorded some earlier sort of I'm a single girl and I'm happy about it songs that, okay, but uh, with other artists. So, yes, he saw that. Um, She laughed. Sarah Carter laughed about it herself in later years. She didn't like it. He said, seemed like whatever song I didn't like, but he said to do would be our biggest sellers. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> a, well, let, now let's backtrack a little bit though because there's a really really big song and i mentioned it earlier when we played our first song snippet that that sort of defines the beginnings of ralph Pierce's career this is really where the starting line starting gun is fired and i'm talking about crazy blues by mamie smith and mm-hmm. here's role in that recording and the decision to record Mamie Smith and the decision to record that song has been much disputed. The guy Perry Bradford who wrote the song and who had introduced Mamie Smith um, to the crew at OK Records initially as a substitute for Sophie Tucker, the red hot mama of vaudeville fame who couldn't make it. And, and Smith came in and, and cut You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And well, it did Sophie all right. couldn't
2: do it. She was Sophie was under contract to Vocalion. She wasn't allowed to make
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> Those technicalities can really tangle you up. But what's yeah. the controversy there, and and what do you think Pierce's role in that record actually was? Crazy Blues.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it was. Well, the first thing is that anybody who anybody who goes even an inch into the Perry Bradford story, he was a talented guy in some ways. He was a hustler in many ways. And uh I always say the least heard sentence in the history of music is I des- I don't deserve that much credit for this. You won't <laughs> hear that one. You always hear <laughs> how I was uh, I was under I was underappreciated and underpaid. So now the fact is he did bring Mamie Spence as an idea. But uh there are other there are other people like, like uh, Hot Lips Page who was in that session in Mamie's band who tells the story quite differently. And uh, you have to understand Ralph Peer was at a moment of transition. He wasn't head, he wasn't head of, 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 of record lines or, or picking. And uh, I tell you, my basic take is because there's these contradictory stories, all of which I lay out in the book. These are the verses of the story. Which of these makes sense, which is backed up by, the, by outside results? I think I think what Perry Bradford did himself not know is he got that yes, but he got that yes in part because uh, they had sent Rapier to check out consumer research on the claim that there was this black audience. We're talking about selling audiences, selling records made by black artists to black audiences, which people had not been focusing on, but there was there was money there in the pockets after World War wanted to do it, you know. And, and so they had sent Pierre down south, and he went into the barbershops and pool halls and started talking to people about, would you want this? He came back with the words of the company, yes, they would. <laughs> so that got the go-ahead. He was there when they did that, and I can tell you this. it's, I mean, the whole dispute about, you know, like who was responsible for making that record. Um, uh, Bradford himself admitted that the head of, recording production at that time gave him the go-ahead. But he got the, he got the go-ahead because Pierre had found that it looked like it was a decent business proposition. And right after that, Ralph Pierre became the head of what would be the, the so-called race records line. The, uh, uh, and, and in the years that followed it, okay, he was responsible for blues, for gospel, for jazz, for whatever they could find within that market which was looked at as another ethnic record. You know, you were going to say you know, the black audience responded to records in their own idiom made by black artists the same way, uh, Greeks responded to Greek records made by, by, okay. So it's like, yeah, finally our stuff. And, uh, and he was put in charge of that line because uh, he had done the research and, uh, he seemed to know what he was
1: doing. Nobody knew very much what they were doing. <laughs> and, and the thing they quickly figured out was that there was a bigger audience than just um, black folks for this music. This becomes a million seller, a huge record. Yeah, well, that's took a while. I tell you what it did
2: do, although it was t- it's, a, it's a complicated issue because there were just so many white stores that would take a record like that then. We're talking about a very segregated America. So that those records were primarily sold either in, you know, black neighborhoods in the north or uh, another phenomenon. They noticed every time they put out one of these records on that line, Pullman importers up north would take a couple dozen of them and start selling them in barbershops or places down south. There was no infrastructure. There were no black owned stores in the neighborhoods in the south at all to speak of. So some white stores picked up on this. But I'll tell you what it did do. Absolutely. It established the blues. In all of its varieties, because the first thing Pierce starts to do and then others is say, what are the flavors out there? What are the variations on this? How how far can we move from the from the from the model of crazy blues and still make this work? So with established blues as a commercial entity. And, you know, that was a big thing.
1: Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what Ralph Pierre did at OK Records. I've got so much ground I want to cover. I'm just going to race through some of the names of people yeah, that he signed. Yeah, it's hard. It's... <laughs> yeah, there's, he did so much. But, I mean, we're talking about Fats Waller, Willie the Lion Smith, James P. Johnson, Sylvester Weaver, who created the guitar rag. Um, we're talking about uh, Sarah Martin on Longing for Daddy Blues, the first time a blues singer was backed by just a guitar, the first blues record that was done that way. The Norfolk Jazz Quartet. Um, and before Louis we use that
2: label. Yeah, he gives the go-ahead to Louis Armstrong and his hot time, the foundation record of uh, popular American jazz.
1: Yeah, after having recorded him with King Oliver and his Creole jazz band, he records Jolly's Roll. Mm-hmm. Jolie Roll R- Morton, W.C. Handy, Benny Moton, and the Kansas City Orchestra, from which Count Basie and Lester Young and that whole Kansas City swing uh, crowd comes from. He makes the first trip to New Orleans, records a number of artists there. He's the first to record Sidney Bechet and Lil Hardin Armstrong is, and um, another African-American, Clarence Williams, become sort of his assistant A&R people and advise him and are allowed to direct sessions themselves. So just an amazing body of work. And if he had died in 1926... Uh, just uh, he would have been a Hall of Famer right there, and we haven't even talked about country music, which he basically starts with Fiddle and John Carson on a on a recording trip that they make in Atlanta. <clears throat> so he's he's traveling all over the country with recording equipment that's much more elaborate than what the Lomaxes are going to be carrying around the trunk of their car. I mean these are. Big machines, and they're quote-unquote portable, but, I mean, it's more like a mainframe computer than what you would think of as a laptop. If
2: anybody – Nathan, if anybody saw the American Epic uh, TV documentary series, they showed specifically what that kind of equipment was like and how it worked. And and it worked. It was cuckoo clock like in its precision, and uh, you could record. By the time they would get to Bristol at RCA, there was electrical recording, which was a whole other matter. But, but uh, yeah, it was difficult to get that equipment to work to take it out. And the reason they went out in the first place was not at all like you know what the what, what again the folklorists had in mind. They keep, you know, keep resisting their comparison because what they were looking for was new artists and novelty and expanding these lines. They had started this uh, what it okay they called hill country music. In 1923, uh, they're looking to expand both of these lines with novel sounds. That's what that's what Peer was always looking for, and uh, and they had million sellers like Ernst Stoneman's the Titanic. There was this was already happening well before Bristol for years. In fact, the Carter family had record collections, but the but. Uh, well, I guess I'll stop there for the moment. <laughs> we we <laughs> yeah, need to move on. I can go on and on, but the, we're trying to move on, I know. Yeah, the, so
1: the- so he leaves okay, and he cuts a very unusual deal for to work with Victor. Tell us a little bit about that deal, the original parameters of it, and how it had to be changed fairly quickly because it was too lucrative for Ralph Pierre.
2: Yeah, well, it just shows that he had figured out something that even uh, the mighty uh, Victor Records, shortly to become RCA Victor Records, hadn't figured out for themselves, which is that uh, what he said what he what he had discovered at OK, and he didn't much like the way they were going about it, is that, is that the real money in the music business, and anybody in it will tell you that this is true to this day. The real money in it is on the publishing side, and every record that's sold quoted to the copyright law they passed in 1909, as he entered the business as a kid, you know, has what's called the mechanical right to it, which means which means that the song on the record, this has nothing to do with the, the the what you get paid for the sale of the record itself, but there's a sale of the song, the copyright, the publishing, and those mechanicals were not being very well served. If you really served them, as he put it, and the whole industry would. You know, it meant that you got other people to record those songs. You 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 promoted them. You've got them places. You 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 made the most of them. And nobody had been doing that um, to the degree that the record company people were in charge of it. They sort of didn't want to. right, but you know, we're doing really well with this song. Why do not we want the other label to have a version of it? So, and the law the law said that you had to. So basically, what he went to them and said. By then he had, he had been so successful that he could fetch a large fee, and he was even, still a very young man in his twenties. but he gave them a the, the initial proposition was, "Look, don't pay me any salary at all. At least that's how the story goes. There may have been a small salary, but in any case, the main part of way I want to get paid is something you don't care about anyway. let me let let me be let me handle those mechanicals. Well, that's two cents per record sold. And basically what it told, what, what that said was. He understood if he handled Roots music right and he was going to handle all those all those lines at, 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 at Victor now, which is which was which was Hillbilly, which they didn't know how to build. They knew he could. Uh, but also the blues and the jazz, all of these Roots music uh, styles that were not the mainstream pop of the era, you know, sweet dance music. But the uh, all of those that it would be possible to sell way more of those than they imagined. But if you handled it right, and that had everything to do with this idea of making sure the right song and the right sound on it connected to the personality of the person singing it. So you could promote a person which would sell more records. And then the song, if you promoted that instead of just letting it lie there, would, 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 would make more money. But it also would, would make the artist who originated it that much bigger. Jimmy Rogers is an obvious case. He, not, he didn't just record him for Victor. The songs would be recorded by ten other people, and the money just came flowing in. But a lot of, but a lot of it was flowing to Ralph Peer, when they realized how much they demanded. Uh, you know, a year, a year later, uh, we got to change this. You're getting more than we are. Yeah, uh, and basically after that they bought his Southern Music Publishing company for a few years and ran it and he was running on an incentive basis for a percentage of the profits they still had the same interest at heart which was find the right person with the right song and sell a lot of hits
1: yeah and he made $250,000 in the second quarter of 1928 which is millions of dollars in today's money so yeah yeah. Because of the trip to Bristol where, you know, he famously signs the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and and he fires Jimmy Rogers' band as well. Jimmy Rogers had come in with a traditional country string band. Ralph Pierce said, that's not going to work. Ralph Pierce sent him back, get us more original songs. And, you know, Jimmy famously goes to New York on his own initiative and and arrives there with things like Tea for Texas, later known as Blue Yodel Number 1, and – becomes the biggest superstar in country music. And as a pop star, honestly, I mean, he's selling records comparable to what uh, any of his pop rivals at the time were selling. So amazing score, but there's um also a legal aspect. I want to get into it. And, and one of the songs that Pierre had recorded first was the Wreck of the Old 97, which Henry Witter had recorded for Pierre at OK Records. Vernon right. Dalhart has a huge hit with this million seller. It's, it's, paired with the Prisoner's Song, and lawsuits start flying. And Ralph Peer has a pretty novel strategy. He actually brings in uh, an expert that was formerly with the Library of Congress to um, provide expert testimony. The judge is blind, deaf, and dumb to this testimony, but on appeal, the thing actually works out. Can you talk a little bit about Peer's legal strategy and his approach to copyright? Because this stuff gets really tangled with these quote-unquote traditional songs.
2: Yeah, what's interesting is that he sometimes did that. He sometimes got involved in those things with friends where he didn't even have any financial stake in it. I mean, um, in that case, he sort of did. But the but yes, he knew darn well that he'd already recorded that song uh, in 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 the twenties, and and now it was you know one of the legitimate million seller records of that era. You got to remember that the population of the country was much less at the time. So almost nothing sold a million copies in, in, in reality. But that was one of the ones that did. And, and uh, yeah, the, the, it also shows the place where I've been emphasizing the differences between him and the folklore. This was a place where they found common ground. He had friends among some of those people. What was that one? It was the, uh, and, and yes, because those cases required you to go back into the history of the song. Who wrote what when. Uh Brennan Delhart's record, he gets he gets a line wrong that makes no sense ever, uh, about the the airman. you know, he something about he lost his average. He sings like he lost his average, which uh, people may be puzzled what that means. Well it didn't mean anything. He misheard air brakes. <laughs> <laughs> and the you know, you could, it, it was it it was possible eventually to prove that he picked it up from the the other record, and and it wasn't about Vernon Dawhart. The the question was that another guy was claiming that he'd written the song. Who hadn't? And so this kind of kind of uh, research into where did this come from? This was kind of new stuff, but you know it's happened ever since. In some ways, most of the time, these sorts of uh, arguments are settled out of court, and it's kept the entire legal side of the music business busy ever since, very busy. But. Uh, You know that was that was in itself a new thing at the time.
1: And let's hear our next song. This is the Memphis Jug Band doing Cocaine Habit Blues. Was the Memphis Jug Band's "Cocaine Habit Blues," pioneers of the Hokum subgenre of the blues, or the Jug Band style? And again, just a litany of great artists that Pierre records uh, with Victor: the Memphis Jug Band, Blind Willie McTell, uh, the second Cajun record ever made, "Mama Where You At" by Myas Lafleur and Leo Salo. Sol- um, the Big Bethel Choir, early gospel, Pentecostal gospel sound, uh, Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, Frank Stokes, Furry Lewis, Memphis Minnie, Bucka White, etc., cetera, etc. Fletcher Henderson on the jazz side, Johnny Dodds, Jimmy Lunsford, Eddie Condon. He puts integrated bands together. He has white band leaders playing with black musicians he has black band leaders playing with white musicians he puts um jimmy rogers with a hawaiian steel guitarist he puts jimmy rogers with Louis armstrong for blue yodel number nine um he's got fats waller backed by an all-white band eddie condon jack teagarden gene krupa just just a ton of amazing stuff but i want to get into this next really big vein that he hits around 1928 he gets sent to Mexico on another one of his scouting expeditions and hits yet another mother motherlode that kind of dominates the rest of his career. What did he find in Mexico, and how did he capitalize on it?
2: Well, the first thing to, the first thing to point out, which is the most amazing thing about the beginning of that to me, and I think to him, <laughs> was that he knew nothing about that music at all. He did not. But because he had... Uh, from OCA Victor's standpoint, cracked the hillbilly problem for them. They knew he could do that kind of thing. You could send him places, he could check into like what's going on there. Um there were all these other record companies that were beginning to make money, you know, in Mexico and point south of the border from there. And they were in. So they sent him down to see what was going on. And he discovered he discovered essentially a parallel situation. As uh, what he fixed at Bristol, which is that, which is that they didn't have a connection to publishing companies. The publishing companies had relations to different labels, and they weren't getting anything. So they basically set up Southern Music Mexico, and he begins working through there and uh, starts setting sessions, asking locals, you know, who's good, all the same kind of thing. It, t- it parallel the country stuff. Exactly, and uh, it must be understood that the the infrastructure all across Latin America for move, for moving music out of their localities was very limited at the time. And he was going to change all that. So it's it's because of what he would do. You know, within weeks he was there in the first sessions. He found Augustin Lara, who's the man who wrote you know Granada and Solamente Mente and is a is a cultural national hero in Spanish speaking countries in general, but um, but uh, and then uh, uh, a song like Besame Mucho, which he would publish, as his vision started to move across the world. They were dancing the Besame Mucho by World War II in the Latin craze in Tokyo and Moscow. <laughs> so they, the, the Latin music was the music of pop music in America in the World War II years, and he entirely made that happen with relations with motion picture people, where. All those movies you can see from the 40s, where there's, you know, uh, Bathing Beauties, Two Comics, and a Latin song, (laughs) he got them in there. And uh, he's often credited with, you know, founding the entire Latin craze. And um, that's kind of beautiful because to begin with, you know, they're usually connected to dances. So as you go from the tango to the mambo to the cha cha, you know, each of these dances, you get a whole new uh, uh, lift. (laughs) <laughs> to latin music and uh he became really heroic especially in mexico but it caused all of course, america too because he really brought their music and composers
1: to the world yeah he absolutely did and when you think about just going down to mexico city on assignment and bumping into august lara playing in a bar or a coffee house um yeah. And and also befriending a sort of an apprentice, this guy Emilio Azcarraga Sr., who becomes a small right. investor. Who was
2: nobody at the time, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it gets him, it rubs him into Southern music as a small investor, and this guy becomes the king of Mexican broadcasting, radio and television, and of course the synergies there are immense. You know, they can promote his songs uh, on, on all these uh, channels that Azcarraga develops. It's, it's, you know, Pierre... I think has the statement about bottling lightning, you know, catching lightning in a bottle. And this is a classic example. Yeah, well, it's, example good to be, of that.
2: it's good to be, Nathan, it's good to be smart and it's even better to be lucky.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, he's got an ex protege who's become a big deal at Victor, who doesn't mm-hmm. much want Ralph Peer around anymore. How does that work that he ends up walking away with ownership of Southern? Music after he has sold it to Victor.
2: Oh, because they didn't care anymore. I mean, at the, at the you, you have to you have to. By the time Pierre got Southern Music back and then began to and began to multiply it into 28 companies in 28 countries, was uh, the depression is on. Everything had collapsed. The record business almost collapsed. Um, even you know they had there was this thing called radio, which this which the part of RCA Victor called NBC. Was very interested in <laughs> um, the and 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 in some ways that hurt segments of the record business. Ironically, if you were somebody like Pierre, who were working blues and country music, um, the southern rural thing, you know, the rural electrification of hadn't come in yet, so that so that so that record players still had it over radio in large parts of the south, which is by the way. Not music, not not uh, not not a musicological question, but business. Um, that's why the recording of blues artists moves from those uh, cla- jazzy uh, cla- so-called classic blues vaudeville blues singers in the twenties to the rural blues singers. You get you get Blind Lemon Jefferson and Blind Willie McTell in the thirties because the audience had become for blues had become more rural. Because the other people were listening to jazz bands on the radio. <laughs> um, they, they, I mean, that's literally why they, they, the music got more down. because that's where you could still sell a few records. I mean, we're talking about a collapse. Jimmy Rogers had sold 500,000 copies. He was now lucky to sell 5,000. And then, you know, there's a letter from Pierre to him to say, well, you're still top of the heap, but the heap's a lot shorter. <laughs> you know, that was. That is, that is, uh, that 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 was the situation so nobody was sure the record business was even going to survive the 30s and the publishing and you know, there was all kinds of there was all kinds of union things there was a lot of there was there was a lot of uh, uh problems that showed up in the 30s so, so by the time he got southern back for really very little money um they didn't care and he saw that there would be next step p- potential. Yeah. Uh, Which had a lot to do with his connection with that movie business. And I think one of the things people don't understand about Ralph Peer is, um, you know, they hear all these stories about the money he made for a few months in 1927, and, you know, that he was getting percentages of all these records. Well, that also tells you something they don't think about, which is when the record sales collapsed, so did his money. So he had to start over in many ways. And the fortune that got to, Finance his worldwide music enterprise, publishing enterprise, uh, came from things like uh, rights to bits of music in in movies in in, in
1: around the world, Europe especially, and then that, that Latin thing hit. And and yeah, he had this unique opportunity to buy that back because the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was one of the few progressive administrations in U.S. history and were actually cracking down on monopolies. So Sarnoff at RCA wanted to focus on his radio yep. business and did not want to get tangled up in, in accusations that he had a vertical monopoly. So they were happy to um, sell Southern music. And, and the bosses at Victor Records were happy to get rid of Ralph Pierre for reasons that are never really explained, but it's clear um, that they were out for him and wanted, wanted him gone.
2: No, well, basically, the guy he was working with, Eli Overseas, wanted to be doing that stuff himself. He was under more money in it. And who is this guy from outside? You got to remember, Pierre is working basically in those years as a consultant to RCA. He's not really an employee. And it's like, why? There's so little much money left. Why are we still giving any to him? You know, <laughs> that, was yeah. the, that was pretty much the issue for get rid of Ralph. But Ralph had set up all these next places to go. And I must say you mentioned the Roosevelt administration. That's as much a background to what happens with him. As as the depression, because the Roosevelt administration was involved with rural electrification and 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 new markets, which will soon you know have jukeboxes in them. Uh, or um, the Roosevelt administration also for, also uh, promulgated the closer relations with Latin America during World War II, which paved the way in many ways. For the Latin music craze, which, matter, which mattered to Pierre's business
1: too. And let's hear one so, of those songs I'm... right now. Um, I want to I play one of the songs that Pierre published and introduced to the American market. And this is Besame Mucho. And this is Jimmy Dorsey's version with Bob Eberly and Kitty Callan singing it. Massive hit in the
3: 1940s.
2: Besame yep. <laughs> Mucho. Each time I cling to a kiss, I hear
0: music divine. But some emotion.
3: hold me, my darling, and say that you'll always
1: and that was Jimmy Dorsey's version of "Besame Mucho, a song written by Consuelo Velasquez, who is yet another songwriter discovery of Ralph Pierre down in Mexico. And, yeah, he forms this alliance with Walt Disney um, as part of the Good Neighbor program that FDR is right. backing in an attempt to counter you know, the global spread of Nazi propaganda, which had been really virulent in South America. And so right. – uh, Pierre becomes good friends with Walt Disney and works with him on the Three Amigos, the, uh, the Three Caballeros. Sorry, not the Three Amigos, the 1980s picture with Chevy Chase, but the Three Caballeros, which is an animated feature that featured tons of Latin songs, frequently in translation, like Solamente Una Vez which became You Belong in My Heart, which becomes another big hit um, and really dramatically changes pop culture, not just in North America, but globally. and um, just an incredible achievement and one that that I think is is undersold but I want un, under praised I guess but I want to get into another controversy that he's right in the middle of and that's this rivalry between Ascap which was the original, original- mm consortium that collected the publishers money and it was originally founded by the you know the lions of Tin Pan Alley the the Irving Berlins and those kind of people and they really treated Ralph Peer and and his copyrights as literally second class citizens who got lower rates on on their uh, sheet music and and mechanical royalties on the records and an opportunity comes along to form a new agency called BMI that's backed by the radio companies how does Peer play into that and capitalize on this massive opportunity?
2: Well, he was very central in it, as the people from BMI would tell you, which is that, which is that, yeah, I mean, even when he was doing their sort of pop music as a newcomer, you know, they, they were all grandfathered into literally being paid higher rates, being able to keep than other people. But in his case, look at the business he's now formed. He's focused on, the Peer Southern organization is focused on uh, basically black music, hillbilly music, and Latin music. And these are the three things in which ASCAP had no interest whatsoever. They Again, about prestige, where they can still consider money was in like this. And uh, as these different uh, labor issues with the musicians union and others broke out in the 40s, um, ASCAP was still trying to charge more and more of the broadcasters who are obviously getting more and more powerful than the national networks. And he says, look, why don't you just do this on your own? If you set up, if you set up your own uh, collection agency for copyrights uh, and you stick with those songs, you can do this anyway. And 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 I can begin to supply you right away because I've got all of this. I got all this Latin stuff and I've got this country music and these Carter family transcriptions. And I've got, and we got a lot of stuff. So in a matter of a few weeks, um, I mean you'd had ASCAP was responsible for over ninety percent of what was played on the radio. And in the course of a few weeks of this of, of, of the this beginning, it, it completely reversed. And if you and I and virtually everybody else listening to this grew up in an era where there were country stations, you know the Latin stations, but and R and, and B stations and and uh, independent record labels in all these different regions that played, that that recorded the music that maybe the majors still weren't that interested in, which was you know all those things. Um, none of I don't think any of that could have happened if they hadn't set up BMI as a place where uh, where the songs could be spread and make money and radio would play them. But
1: uh, yeah, he's right in the middle of that too. Yeah, and yet another accomplishment that would make him a noteworthy figure in music history just for that one thing. And we haven't even talked about his second wave of country artists. He's publishing Bob Wills and Tommy Duncan, Ted Daffin, Floyd Tillman, uh, the controversial Jimmy Davis, who may or may not have written You're My Sunshine and many other tunes. Oh, he didn't, he didn't.
2: Yeah, we know. He didn't write it. He wrote other things. He didn't write that. There's really no question he didn't. Yeah. But uh, there was also, Pia had a general policy on these matters of if, he, if you worked with him, he wasn't gonna change if 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 you did something like was blatant, nobody nobody exactly know who did the people that the people you know like researchers thought had written that song they didn't write it either so it's, also, it's, it's there's a few examples of things like that but uh, he would tend to leave it all he would tend to leave it alone This sometimes made problems where for, for, for the songwriters who had a middleman like say. Buddy Holly and the crickets would have, you know, the, there was an in-between layer there. And Norman he would Penny, tend yeah. to let them go, he would tend to let them go. He'd be with Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers was signing up song letters that he would write and you know exactly how much they got paid was sort of up to Rogers. Uh so so this tended to create good relations with the people that he left alone, but <laughs> not always <laughs> with the, the people who suffered. The um uh it's a complicated business because the, the, the to this day the allocation of who gets what is always a big deal in music. And uh um the thing for people to remember is that the music business has always looked at a copyright, which is kind of the centerpiece of what Ralph Peer did in all these areas, as a as 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 a property. If nobody thinks you, you were the architect of your house just because you own it now. And yeah. that's the way they look at and that's the way they look at the song people I, I think people that are not in the field tend to think of whoever's name is on a song uh is the absolute artist and creator and owner of the song and it's more complicated than that now he never ever stuck his name on a song like so many unscrupulous people in music did never not once did he claim any part of the writer's part and that's he was pretty the publisher
1: yeah. pretty remarkable and and he goes through yeah. you know into the 50s he's he gets the copyright on Mockingbird Hill, which is a huge hit for Patti Page and that whole, you know, Mitch Miller interregnum era in the early 50s before rock and roll, but kind of after the collapse. That of record X-Motors. alone,
2: that song, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. No, speak. go ahead. But go ahead. That, song, that song alone practically brought his business back after a hiatus where things have sort of quieted down and uh, there's a whole other big run into the 50s. Then.
1: Yeah, he, he adapts. During to which the...
2: massive pop and
1: rock and roll happen. Yeah, and he's right in the thick of it. He gets the Little Richard catalog from Art Rupi. He signs up the Big Bopper. He signs up Buddy Holly, like you say. Um, even had a piece of Tom Dooley, which he didn't elect to, to exercise in a lawsuit. <laughs> he let the Kingston Trio and some other well, people. He
2: just <laughs> laughed about it. Yeah, you know, all people were busy suing each other about Tom Dooley. As, you know, why? Because the Kingston Trio just sold millions of records on the song. You know, this is kind of tend to be when people come out of the woodwork and say, I did that. You know, happens every time. But uh, in his case, he knew he'd recorded that song with Grayson and we were back in the 20s. And he was just laughing. He's like, <laughs> by that point, he didn't even he didn't even feel like getting involved with that one. It was near the end of his life. And he said, uh, well, we know where that came from. And in How- fact, you know, I, I mean, as far as that goes, everybody knows in, in the time, even in the Kingston Trio version of, uh, of Tom Dooley, there's that there's that policeman Grayson who's there. Well, hell, that was a relative of Grayson from Grayson <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, in real life, I mean, it's like he knew where the song came from.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he had a good time So Barry Mazur's been my guest. The book is Ralph Peer and the Making of Popular Roots Music. And Barry, thank you so much for documenting all this stuff. This is incredibly important history and an incredibly central figure in American music. And I know so much more. and We all know so much more. Thanks to you. So thanks for coming on the show. and hope to have you back maybe to talk about Jimmy Rogers sometime.
2: Okay, my pleasure, Nate. Thank you.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss Smokey Robinson's autobiography co-written with David Ritz. Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at dot.